0: Welcome to the Carmen Murray Show, where we have conversations about 21st century business and culture. Here in the Murray Den, we'll open a window into a world of things that intrigue and inspire, share stories of excitement, hope, bravery, courage, and resilience. And now, from the Solid Gold Studios, let's level up... Lean in and get Murray with your host, Carmen Murray, as we let curiosity lead us down new paths.
1: Hey, Future Fit Tribe. Welcome to the Murray Dane. We have some very, very exciting guests in the studio today. But before I introduce them to you, I want to tell you a story. In my day-to-day life, I spend a lot of time with authors, storytellers, actors, people in the TV and film industry, And I identified one common thread. Telling someone else a story comes with huge responsibility and accountability. It's about packaging a story and keeping it as honest, raw, and authentic as possible. Think about an actor. They have to get into a character. So they read the script they get into character and they study every movement. If we think about the Bohemian Rhapsody, if we think about all of the characters and how they were studied, you find yourself after the movie that you're still in character. This is one of the challenging things that we most probably don't recognize for the people that go out there to go and discover these stories and that to live and breathe it. We decided today that we're gonna dedicate today to the woman that's actually behind the camera the woman that's gathering the stories and find out from them what it's like to discover those stories and the challenges that comes with it and the emotional toll that it takes on their personal lives. In studio with me today we have Michelle Craig. Michelle is the news anchor on ENCA, South Africa's leading independent 24-hour news station and key contributor setting the daily news agenda. Michelle, welcome to the studio. I believe that I need to be ready to roll with the punches. <laughs> Thanks, Is that true? true? It, it, p- be on the edge of your seat. I'm be ready scared for <laughs> already <laughs> sitting at the edge of my seat. I might just fall down. If you hear a noise, then you know it's me. Okay. <laughs> More than welcome. Then with me also, we have Manoleri Mataboghe Machetla, former male and Guardian political editor, raised in a rural village. She later studied journalism and fell in love with the medium of radio. She is also a senior researcher for NCA. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Mandeliti. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Someone to give a voice to the people that are disadvantaged, poor, that live in a oppressed time. So I believe that you have a lot that you can contribute in that, which I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thank
2: you so much. And for, thanks for giving us an opportunity to share our stories behind the stories
1: and then helen never knows i'm like the the runt of the
3: latia <laughs> <laughs> <name Lydia>,
1: <laughs> so you're a seasoned uh broadcast producer uh we've crossroads on mags on media you have had a long-standing relationship as long-standing producer for mags on media um have also been involved in various other initiatives so how are you doing
3: Thrilled to be able to talk about this, I think, and a little bit nervous to be on the other side of the mic. Why? I think Michelle, especially, is very used to being on the other side of the coin, yeah?
1: You know, she's sitting here like, ladies and gentlemen, before she's ready for in. action. She's like ready for action. I'm, I'm getting ready to roll with the punches here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the three of you work together on a documentary series, Women of the Liberation, the unsung heroines in the apartheid struggle. I'm going to play the promo now. The
4: stories of South Africa's freedom fighters are well documented, exiled, interrogated, and sometimes executed in the fight for an equal society. The stories of the remarkable women who suffered a similar fate during those turbulent years often remain untold. We wanted all our children to home because they had a duty to free their country. The petrol bomb hit the kids' room. If they had been there, they would not have survived. I committed myself to To raise my children in a very decent manner, in honour of him. To show him how much I respect him and how much I loved him. This Women's Month, ENCA pays tribute to the Women of the Liberation in a series of stories about struggle, perseverance and survival.
1: When you listen to that, how does that make you feel?
3: I'm um, relieved in a sense that the first one has re- already gone to air. I think it's been a long process for far people don't always see, I think, all the planning and th- that goes into getting something like this on air. So listening to it now, I'm still quite emotional about it because I'm sitting with these stories in my mind that hasn't gone out yet. And But I think it's important stories to tell, and I think we're excited to get it out there.
5: Yeah, for me, as the person who has the privilege of telling the story from the front of the camera, you know, by the time... I get to sit down in an interview. Helene and Manaleedi have already done so much of the legwork that comes with the story. And in your introduction, Carmen, you were talking about the huge responsibility that comes with telling someone else's stories. Mm -hmm. It's not just a job for us. These are stories that we have come to care for very deeply. Yes, it's a huge responsibility to tell that person's story, and yes, we carry those stories with us up until it goes to air, and I would argue for the rest of our lives. But these people as well, these are their lives. They are living these horrific stories that we are telling South Africans. So we feel a massive responsibility. In fact, Lucanio Trelata, the son of, of Fort Trelata, one of the Craddock Four, he's actually a close colleague of mine and a close friend of mine. And so... That didn't lighten the burden. In fact, it made it that much more heavy because I felt that responsibility. And for days before the interview, we don't sleep. And when we do, all we dream about are these stories. They mean a lot to us. Beautiful. lady.
2: You know, every time that um, Melody plays, even if I'm in another room, I kind of feel like the edge to go and stand in front of a TV mm. and watch it over and over again. Because... There's a part of me that is relieved that we were able to secure these interviews because it's not easy to convince anyone to say, allow us into your home, allow us into your life, Mm. open up about things that you never thought you could speak publicly about to the nation, tell millions of people that I went through this. and Because most of them would, as much as they would want to speak about this, but there's also an element of I need my privacy. I need to forget about this and move on. I'm living in a democratic country. I sacrificed. I knew what I was sacrificing for. And you go to them and say, please, can you relieve that again? Mm. Please, Can you start in the 50s or 70s or whatever? For them, it's like opening up fresh wounds Mm. because most of them have not healed. They are trying to heal, but most of them have not healed. So every time I hear this melody, I'm like, thank you, God, we were able to shoot these interviews. And thank God they allowed us to shoot these interviews because every time, I mean, we had a list of these women and they were like on my PC. And every time I had to call them, I had to kind of rehearse and think again, Mm. what is it that I'm going to say? How am I going to start this conversation? And I'll pick up the phone and it's like, you know, with this one, I really need to be honest. I need to tell them that we want you to talk about this and this and that. And I need to say to them, I know this and this and that that you haven't spoken about. And I want you to talk about it. it. It wasn't easy. But also to say to them, we don't just want you. Because initially the concept was us, we want them with their daughters. Because we wanted to say to South Africa, this were not just women who took part in the liberation They've got daughters that they raised. How did this impact on their lives as mothers, but also on the lives of their daughters? How did it shape their future and what they are today? So to say to them, yes, we want to interview you. You may be a public figure. You're a minister. But then we also want your daughter. I mean, their daughters are not in the public space. So you're saying to them, we need to invade your privacy.
5: Mm. and
2: shoot it in your home you know we, we need to come to your house and shoot in your home so basically even if this person was enjoying their privacy you're saying to them I want to come and see where you live and it wasn't easy and none of them really gave us a hard time the minute they said it's okay you can come here's my address I was relieved but also I kept on there was this anxiety that kept replaying it over and over again until the day that we walk out of the agency, it's done.
1: One doesn't realize the, the work that actually goes on behind the scenes. I mean, it's not like, you know, we just always see the end result. It's like Uber, like Uber came up with this great app and we all just saw the success of this multi-billion dollar app. But all the failures and all the work that went into it, the development, the funding, all of that kind of stuff, although it has nothing to do with the story. Um, but I'm just trying to paint the picture for our audiences is that, we need to recognize the hard work that you guys put into to actually making a documentary series like this possible. One thing that you said, Manaleli, that really resonates with me is something very profound is, you know, people don't want to stay locked in the past. They want to move on. But something then on the other side, on the flip side of the coin that's so important is so very few people are still alive that have survived the, the real consequences of apartheid. Well, and yeah. this was part of the reason why we decided to do the
3: series, because we were saying, you know, we know a lot of the the stories from a male perspective, from the the, the freedom fighters. We know about the Mandelas. We know about the Susulus. We know, and it's important stories to tell, but there hasn't been a lot of focus um, on women in the liberation. And I think the other side to that is the responsibility that a woman has in her family and to her kids. So even if you're, In the liberation struggle or your political figure, there's still this whole other part of you that I think few people get to see. And you made the comment now that the the funding and and getting this done, whatever, has got nothing to do with this conversation, but it actually has everything to do with this conversation because we were quite lucky to get the buy in from the channel to allow us to do Mm. this because obviously there are costs involved to doing it. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, we've got, I'm sitting here with our original list. We've got. A list as long as my arm of people that we still want to do. We were only able to do five of these interviews now, but we're hoping to to do more because this is a generation that is, kind of, sad to say, but on the way out. And there's a lot of history, and stories, and I think truths that are going lost. Yeah. If we're not, totally. gonna, if we're not going to do this now,
1: then when? Just further to Helene's point there is we can never forget the fight for democracy and the future generations. We always need to be reminded of that. And I think it's so easy to forget when, you know, life just goes on and we don't talk about it. It should be a conversation that we have all the time to remember where things came from, but also what action we need to take. Because I think something that's very important here is we're always talking about co-creation, but we're living in an age of co action. We need to find a way of how we all together as one united front can recognize what happened in the past, but what now? What's next? And I think this is why this the stories are gonna be phenomenal to share, you know, with the audiences, but also with the people of South Africa. lady let's start with you. Talk me through the work that goes into preparing for the story, getting the participation. You've now got buy-in and now there's, there's funding and now it's all up. Now we can go for it. So now what happens next?
2: So before you can even choose like the kind of a person that you'd like to interview, there's a lot of reading involved. You have to read a lot of books, mm-hmm. a lot of past articles about them, the interviews that they did. I watched like old interviews that they did with different news channels and you have to know a lot about them. So you basically need to be well armed. Go in there with more information than you're actually asking them to give you. And then after that, you also need to prepare them mentally. That we are coming to your home. We're coming with a team of 10 people. And we are going to probably dismantle your lounge.
3: (laughs) let, let We're me just state for the record so many hours. Yeah, normally yeah. we don't get to travel with those kinds of teams and it, it wasn't the um the situation, especially when we had to travel far, like when we had to go to Craddock. But we fought very hard to make sure that we have a lot of resources to ma- really do justice to the story and it shot I mean, I'm quite proud of it. I think it shot beautifully. I think the production value is really good and if anybody who knows the news environment knows, we're quite cheap and nasty a lot of the time. You know, we <laughs> you go in with one. You know, Jeremy Max is going to have my skin for this, but 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 I mean, we go in with one camera, and it's to get the news out and get things done quickly. And, and yeah. really, with these kinds of stories, it's a it's a completely different vibe. You need to really give it the time mm. to develop, mm. and it's
5: because these stories are so incredibly valuable. You were talking earlier about the effects of what happened in the past and perhaps how they uh, influence the present. And there is that train of thought around apartheid atrocities that we should move on and that we should get over it. But the fact of the matter is is that there are thousands of families around the country who are still living with the very real effects of apartheid, um, who lost family members to security branch officials who killed them in cold blood. And Fort is is one of those people. He's one of the Cradock Four. He's one of the thousands of people. And if we just think about the, the kind of prep that goes into a story like that of the Cradock Four, for example, Manaledi and I, and Helen as well, would have read things like the TRC transcript, which is incredibly emotional and painful to read, but we're always coming to it from a perspective of an outsider who realizes that there was a real person who lived through this during the most difficult time in her life, and that is Domene, Nomonde, Fort wife, who at the time of his death was a mother of two and pregnant with her third child. So we always come at it from a perspective of, you know, we are telling the story and it's difficult detail for us to, to, to hear and to read, but there was a person who was at the forefront of that living through it, God alone knows how her and her family have, uh, and they continue to live through through his murder and his death. We also would have read uh, details around, you know, the wounds of the Craddock four, how they were tortured, how their bodies were desecrated uh, after they were murdered. You know, Normande Alata never actually saw her husband's body after he was killed because the elders advised her, You know, keep a picture of him in your mind that is him complete, not the way he is now. Um, So those are, you know, the the, the prep that goes into a story like this, we are very mindful. And and I'm talking about this team of three because I, I feel like in this project in particular, we've had such a close working relationship and we've all felt so equally strongly about
1: Telling these stories
5: and doing them justice.
1: I have no words. I think just thinking of Namonde's story. Think about it. You um, have just lost your husband. You know you are pregnant. You're a woman and you're black, and you're 26. Who do you turn to? How how do you even? I mean, that's a huge responsibility. Well, I mean, well, so the, the interesting part
3: of that, sorry, my lady, is that that responsibility was passed on to Dorothy, her daughter, who was nine, year, nine years old at the time and who assumed sort of the deputy parent position because she had to. Mm. And what I wanted to say was when it comes to the research, so for example, that something that Manalady found, and it's also because you're trying to not just rehash what's been done before, we were also really hoping to give a different perspective to what's been reported on because I think the Tralatas, especially in the series, are probably one of the more reported on stories. But to really find those little nuggets of things that hasn't been discussed before and Manaledi, through her research, found um, this incredible story about the song that, that the nine-year-old Dorothy sang upon hearing about her father's murder and we actually have a, a clip from the interview
5: the memory of when you were first told, Manamunde, Mm. that your husband had been murdered. Yes. I don't want to say that he died Mm. because he was murdered. Yes. And what we're told about that moment in your life is that Lucania had a physical reaction and and you started started singing. Mm.
4: She started to sing and uh, I could not understand that is she really did she hear these people what they just said? And for a moment, I could not cry because it was just it just went like blank. And here is my little boy sick here next to me, and this one is singing loudly. Do you remember? Sing- there was a, there was a story to the singing though. My dad and them have been lost for some days, right? And up until that point you were still hoping yes, yes. that they would yes. that, they, that, that they would come back, come back. that yeah. maybe you know they were incarcerated or even that they have skipped the country, country. because that mm. those were one of the things that mm. could happen then and um, on this particular afternoon I went to prayer I was attending girls prayer at the Anglican church older people came to fetch me from the prayer meeting which was a clue to me that something might have happened. Uh, My mom was at my grand's house by then, already. Heavily pregnant. Heavily pregnant. And then I get into the house, it's full of people. So when the new, when the tide was broken, I was from church. That burst into a song was probably my way of releasing the tension because the tension was already built up by they going to fetch me from church, bringing me here. We get here, everybody's quiet, it's just somber. And they were just waiting for me. I was the only person who was missing so that this could be told. So when I got in, it was like I got in and I got into this tension. And then they said it and I burst into song because... Song was maybe my way of dealing with issues. Song was my way of announcing. Mm. And song was my way of saying there's danger. So, yeah, and, the, and, and people picked up the song. It was a hymn that I sang and, and, and people picked up the hymn. And I guess for a moment I was holding everyone because they kept singing and kept singing and kept singing until they could cry. Mm. Some of them could cry and, you know, and it announced, I think, more than the, the announcement of the death, the song announced the death. And I carried that, literally. And when I broke into song, everybody could break. And what I remembered as a child was that song went on and on and on and on until maybe people could eventually get to realise what it was that was happening.
2: Yeah. So the Craddock Four were a group of young activists in Craddock in like late seventies, early nineteen eighties. Two of them were teachers. Fort Galata was one of those that were teachers young teachers in their 20s, early 30s, who became a thorn in the apartheid security police at the time, even though what they practiced and what they advocated for was peaceful resistance, peaceful protest to what they saw as the injustices of that time. And because they were on the hit list, of the security branch for some time. In 1985, they happened to have gone to a meeting in Port Elizabeth. They were UDF activists at the time. Remember, UDF was formed after the ANC was banned. So they also joined the UDF. They went to a meeting in PE and they didn't come back. They were missing for days. No one knew what happened to them. Eventually, when they were found after about five days, it was dead bodies dumped in different locations in uh, P.E. They were tortured before they were killed. They were, their bodies were burned. Their car was burned. It was one of those gruesome murders that made international headlines and got the international community to look into South Africa and notice that something is going wrong. And it's one of those murders that got South Africa to stand up those that were against apartheid to say, it's enough. Uh, we, we know them as the Cradock Four, but they were fathers, they were some people's sons, they were husbands, they were some people's friends, and they were comrades to those that they were organized with in Cradock. Uh, their story had so much impact on not just Cradock and the Eastern Cape, Yes, the Eastern Cape because it then became recognized as the province or at the time the area where activism was so high and so recognizable that you couldn't, you know, do without it. But they also helped the South African story to be told in that painful manner, but also got the international community to pay attention more than they were doing before this happened.
5: You'll know that Lucanio Kalata actually wrote a book, I think, uh, last, Lady, year, last year. Yeah. My Father Died for This. My yeah. Father Died for This. And um, he was just over three years old at the time of his father's death. And to this day, to his, he can't recall any memories of, of his father. And he describes it in the book. But Nomonde Calata tells us about how close they were, uh, Lucanio and his father. You know, um, Fort called him... My buddy, you know, uh, he was going to be a father again for the third time. And he, in fact, hoped that it would be another girl because he was worried that, you know, another boy might interfere with this special relationship that he has with with Lucanio. And in that interview, um, his sister Dorothy tells us uh, after his father's death, after their father's death, there were a number of moments where Lucanio would disappear. He would just walk off and Dorothy would go looking for him and she would find him near the uh, the, the, the gravestone, near Fort's gravesite. And she would say, I mean, this is a child not yet four, not yet five. And she would say, but what are you doing here? Like, why are you walking here by yourself? And he'd say, no, dad brought me here. I walked with dad. He brought me here. He's left now. He said he's coming to fetch me again. And there are, there are so many moments where this family has these strange experiences of the presence of Fort Trelata. And this happened 34 years ago. And honestly, the way we saw and the way you will see Namonde Trelata crying in this interview, and she says it herself, she's crying as if it happened yesterday because the feeling of him not being there is still
3: so real for this family sitting in somebody's living room and experiencing such raw emotion them allowing you into that very personal space is incredibly powerful but also again i think makes that weight of responsibility that we feel so much heavier because it's really a privilege to to be there and i think we spoke a couple of days ago, Carmen, you and I spoke about like what makes us angry when when we do these stories. There's still no justice. This family had gone through two very high-profile inquiries. There's the TRC evidence that was given. There's very graphic um, visuals available online, actually, that I think – People should maybe go see because Mm. I don't think people realize when when we say so easily but when are people going to get over it Mm. yes how do you get over that and and the story of the of the daughter that came after the death Mm. of her father Tumani Mm. who never met him who's growing up with the story of her father and and there's a very powerful part in the interview as well where she's 33 years old now I think and she read her brother's book and for the first time she was able to break because it was the first time that she i think came to the realization of what happened and that trauma that's been passed down
1: within the family i mean it's 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 it, this is the the thing that really grips me is the fact that it's not like it, you you can reconcile with it easily because my dad died of cancer or my dad died in a car accident or anything like this. This is real hectic stuff. This is murder. And just for a basic human rights. And I totally agree with you. I think um, in the times that we live in is that uh, there's people out there that you sometimes just want to clap them, you know, Mm. sorry for, for saying that. But I mean, we... We live in a bubble. We, we, yeah, we live in a bubble. Just because you haven't gone through it, you don't have empathy for for the struggle and the empathy for for what happened there. Mm-hmm. And um, I, to be honest, I think that we only know one percent of what we should be knowing because a lot of these things went to the grave. We don't know the stories. We don't know what discussions and meeting points. I mean, we probably need like thousands of historians to get together in order for us to, to get to the, the truth. And yes, we've had the truth and reconciliation. You know, we've had all of the commission and we've had all of that. But I mean, did it really help us to recover from from all of the hurt and the pain that happened? Well, if we look
5: at this family, I think no. that's, a, that's a simple, hard no a uh, hard no it, it it didn't help them get justice it didn't help them to recover it went very little of the way no no part of the way at all in them finding closure
1: it's it's very important to also recognize that people are angry and we don't understand why they're angry and then some we have what they call the oppression olympics like my struggle is worse than your struggle it's um like what mine is better than yours or you know it's that kind of vibe that you feel and it's like you know what if you actually I mean just I know this this is maybe not particularly to the topic but it really got me thinking knowing that this interview was coming is uh, my husband and I went to the Drakensberg this weekend we went there and I love uh, because I grew up in Durban so I, I really appreciate appreciate the Zulu culture and uh, we we're driving am- amongst the mountains and I just see these people walking. There's no public transport. There's nothing. They're living in some rural village, isolated. They, in the, they, On the side of the road, this most random place, they're trying to sell a bit of wood just that they could have food, food on the table. And we were just purchasing wood because I was just like, I just want to make sure people have something on the table to see. I don't know. like They're, they're feeling of guilt. And then until you you've actually gone and you've seen how people have been disadvantaged through this whole process, only then you can start to begin to understand what this fight was all about.
2: I think what's interesting about this uh, documentaries that we're doing is that we're not only looking at the past. Mm. We're asking these people to talk about the now. Mm. So towards the end of every interview, you will hear their thoughts yeah. about where the country is. Great. And some of them thinking... We, we missed a point somewhere. We need to fix this. We need to do this. And when you hear it from someone who sacrificed so much and that you think is okay with the fact that we've attained freedom, is okay with the fact that they can now live in the suburbs, but actually when you start like digging in and getting their very true thoughts, you realize that they're also equally unhappy, that there's a lot that has not been done. And um, it's documenting history, but also saying to the viewers, here we are. Why did we fight for this and this and that, but we've only achieved 10% of
4: that?
1: Correct. That's exactly it. You've put, you, you have packaged it as a storyteller. Right. That is exactly what it is. Yeah. It's, it's,
2: as, a, as a storyteller, as a journalist, it, it's kind of emotionally draining. To do this Because you you do it over and over again You read these things You report on these things And it's better sometimes To get that voice from outside To say it In the most authoritative manner That a freedom fighter can say it
1: One thing that Hillian's just touched on That I want to get into So you go into somebody's home This is a place where it all happened a tsunami of emotions. The this the, the fights, um, the, the the tears, the pain, um, the happy moments, those little moments of pockets of joy that happened when the babies were born, but then also this this big thing of of I don't know, I, I don't even have words for it, but but um grief, grief, and grief and sadness. And sadness. exactly and you're in this place where all this energy lives without even you know doing much you're already exposed to all of that pain how did it make you feel to sit there and 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 experience all of those emotions within that environment we were very
3: specific and deliberate about making sure that we meet the families before we go and do the interview which i think is incredibly important and i don't think that is something that a lot of us in the media industry do anymore and I think it's incredibly important because I don't think you can just go in there and, you know, tell me about your dead husband yeah. on the first time that I meet you. Mm-hmm. There should be at least some kind of rapport and some kind of understanding of what we're trying to get out of this. Mm-hmm. So so we made a point of having conversations before and actually physically meeting the families before before we actually did the interviews, which I think went a long way in in easing their minds I think in terms of what our intentions were Mm. but I also think for us it it helps us emotionally to prepare in a way as well because you get a sense of who that person is Mm. so for example we um we also had the honor in the series of of interviewing um Navi Pillay, who um was the high counselor for the UN Human Rights Council I think for many years and our colleague Marcel Gordon did the did that interview but we went to go and meet her and she's I mean she's a judge she's she's very serious and no nonsense and 77 and doing yoga <laughs> and amazing and gonna outlove us all but there's this amazing sense of humor with her and I think we also wanted to make sure that it Yes, we needed to tell the important stories, and especially with the Kalatas, I think it was a very heavy, heavy story of grief um, that needed to be told. But there's also amazing moments in all of these interviews where we managed to just get to, the, to that sense of humor and the sense of family and the way people are with each other, you know, when you're really in your, your safest place, mm-hmm. which I think was quite special. Yeah,
5: the, the the Alata family story was so incredibly heavy. And, you know, as as we were preparing for this interview, the three of us were talking about what this decision around only the female anchors on ENCA doing these interviews, mm. why this was such an important decision. And it, it was so incredibly important. We don't want to say that our male counterparts could not have done it justice. But for me, as a mother, as someone who... Is family oriented, who knows something about loss through the other stories, perhaps that we we tell on the channel. I feel like that brings a certain something to an interview like this. Mm-hmm. I felt like I spoke to Normande Calata and to Dorothy on a mother-to-mother level, mm-hmm. and in women's, with this being Women's Month, I think that's so important because we do as women bring something different to the table. And as journalists, you know, we're often... We expect ourselves to be hard, you know, to be hard-hitting and to always be incredibly serious. But the feminine touch uh, on an interview, particularly like this documentary series, is so incredibly important. And I feel like it it would have been a different series had it been from the perspective of a male interviewer speaking to someone like de Tralata. And Helene is so right in how important it was for us to go and meet the family beforehand. We sat down at their table. We had tea. Mm -hmm. We discussed some of the issues we wanted to talk about in the interview, and that was before we went on camera. Mm -hmm. So to establish that relationship first and to then go in and try to retell the story and to do it justice. And I mean, I can't stress the importance of South Africans knowing stories like this not just of the Tralata family, but struggle stories. You need to go out there and you need to educate yourself about where South Africa today comes from. Mm-hmm. It's a place of incredible hurt and pain. It's a place of murder and torture mm-hmm. and loss. And if you are, as Helene and Manaledi has said, if you are living in this bubble where you expect the majority of South Africans to move on and to get over it, you are so incredibly mistaken. There are people here that are living with pain that you, you can't even imagine. And what we're trying to do with this series is to give you a sense of it. We're not giving you the whole story.
1: We're giving you a sense. And it's building a form of curiosity. Because I think people need to become more curious about, about what happened in the past. Because only then, I always say, where there's a lack of knowledge, there is chaos. And you know, one other thing,
2: you've been saying we live like in in a society that is woke now, but we woke in a rather fashionable way, in a different way. Selectively woke. In a very selective way, yeah. We don't know ourselves the way we should. We talk about nation building, but how do you build without a foundation? Because you need to start somewhere. So for as long as we do not know and we do not recognize where we come from, we are not going to be able to build. Because whatever we go, we're trying to build, I mean whatever we've been trying to build for the past how many years? Twenty five? Twenty five years. That wall that is probably somewhere like higher keeps like crumbling over and over again because we are failing to recognize our past. We are failing to acknowledge the pain of the past, and we are also failing to acknowledge the contribution that many people made, both black and white, because freedom fighters were not just black, Mm -hmm. both black and white, both men and women, Mm -hmm. including the children who had to grow up without their parents or the children that had to grow up in different countries without a sense of citizenship because they were refugees. They had to be moved from this country to that one, depending on who sponsors their education at that time, which country is going to accept them to go and further their studies at the university. And I mean, we're talking about not a university that anyone goes to. We're talking about universities that were specially built for freedom fighters. So what life do they know? That's the only life they know. They would have met with other freedom fighters from other countries. That's who they mingled with, who they befriended. So, you have taken a part of their childhood away. You have taken a part of their youth away. And today, when they are ministers or leaders in different capacities, and when you say something, they snap, you get shocked. But you don't know why they're snapping. Unless you know their story, you will understand why they're so quick to defend themselves. You will understand why they are so emotional yeah. about where we come from, or so protective yeah. about this country called South Africa.
1: Yeah. I'm very uh, controversial, so I debate things with my family and I debate things with a lot of people. I have my views, and and one of my views is like, you know, you you actually have no right to speak on something when you've benefited from the apartheid regime, if you've benefited from him, from it. It's a very—I don't know—like you know, then being judgmental and not being empathetic. I have a problem with it. Um, you know, let's just move on from this. Now we into the the new rainbow nation. But you've benefited from the apartheid regime, so. But you know, come I'd like
2: to bring in a different opinion yeah. in that one. There are people who yes benefited from apartheid, mm-hmm. not because they enjoy it. And forcing pain of, on others. Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. It's just probably the color of their skin mm-hmm. that gave them the advantage. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make them the bad people. Mm-hmm. Those same people, Nomonde, Galata, keeps saying, when I desperately needed help, mm-hmm. when I needed to put my children through school, yeah, the people that helped me yeah. were white.
1: For sure. For sure.
2: You know, so there are those people who understood humanity, Mm. Even in those
1: days 100% you But,
3: I, but I, that being said though I do think that Maybe this is another episode At some this point This is definitely <laughs> another, <laughs> but, <laughs>
1: but a, but a, a deep one <laughs> but, but
3: I definitely think There's something uh, Conversations to be had About the fundamental Misunderstanding Around the term White privilege
1: Yes Yes Totally Totally People
3: don't get it
1: Yeah
5: I, 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 And perhaps Sorry yeah. comment, and that Perhaps it is a misnomer To now to claim That there is such a thing As black privilege mm. Because it, it just doesn't work that way. And yeah, this probably is a topic for You're a whole have other to have show. Us back. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, I like, can't. I'm not. I'm already always <laughs> in the front of my seat. Not, I'm, I'm not saying I totally. I, I'm totally with you on that, Money Lady, because I mean, um, f- from the way I grew up and stuff, I mean, we used to really try and nurture. My best friend was our domestic workers. I grew up as the lot lamiki. So my best friend was our domestic workers' daughter. And I could not understand why I was not allowed to have a conversation or a certain time that I'm not allowed to talk to her and then she needs to go and she needs to go home and I could never understand why can I not have my friend with me with that being said is I also have people that I've engaged in conversation that's you know now got a home that's worth 20 million rand 30 million rand they've retired they they earn their money and they do all of that but they always have very negative things to say when you've benefited from the system. And now to sit on the, on the side and, and judge people. For me, that's a conversation for another day because otherwise we're going to sit here until like go- gosh knows when. But do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. For the audience, do you hear what I'm saying? I hope they're listening. <laughs> on a lighter note, let's talk quickly about... Okay, so On the road. <laughs> going there. I don't what know, for, are the lighter moments that happens before this all happens? For
5: me, it was a pretty straightforward trip to Craddock.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One
3: thing you should that know that about Michelle suspicious. is that she's a blatant liar. <laughs> oh my
5: gosh. No way. No, no, no. Uh, Google Maps is completely to blame for what happened on our trip to Craddock. So we landed all in good time. Yeah. We were set to arrive at the Tralata home Yeah. With hours to spare. You know, we may even have had supper there, if time permitted. (laughs) But I thought, you know, since we're in the Eastern Cape, the home of my alma mater, Rhodes University, I thought, can we ask Google whether Rhodes University perhaps is en route to Craddock? And Google told me yes. And that is my story. (laughs) I'm sticking to it. (laughs) So we went to Rhodes University. It was a fantastic trip. I (laughs) took a walk down (laughs) memory lane. (laughs) Hylian took photos of me at my residence, at our admin building. It was wonderful. Then we put in Google Maps Craddock, which as it turns out, Was another two and a half hours
3: (laughs) in the other direction. So (laughs) let us detour. (laughs) But let me also say, so about around about the time where we were expected to arrive in Craddock, we get a call from our cameraman, Neba, who's already there. And we say, we just made a quick bit stop in Grahamstown. And he's going, why are you in
1: Grahamstown? (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then. Well, so we, we Is Jeremy Max listening to this? I hope Jeremy Max is not
3: <laughs> listening to the story. Uh, wasteful expenditure yeah. of company resources, but um, So so we were due to go, go meet the Karata family the night before doing the interview and um so we arrive at the guest house, very nice, and realise my Lady's bag is missing. Oh god. We're
2: Only no. when everyone is going to the room um, I realise that my bag is not <laughs>
1: closing. <laughs> oh my
3: god. So we're in Craddock. it's 7, 7.30 by mm. this point. And you it takes you... two and a half hours to get to PE, where the bag is. I mean, we were, well, in our case, it took us five <laughs> hours.
1: <laughs> Jeez, like. But,
3: um, so, quite impressed, I have to say, with Craddock, um, we managed to find an open spa, uh, spa yeah. where yes. we could find Manaledi, a toothbrush, and a, a washcloth that <laughs> would tie through to the next morning at least. But, so, we pitch up at the Talata house, greeted by all the grandchildren, the whole Kalata family, not realizing that it was also Dorothy's birthday on that very oh, day. My but word. so now we're very late. <laughs> so they're very <laughs> gracious. Like they're very no. So they're very gracious, and they kind of usher us in, and are they expected us earlier. But they've got the whole family there already for a celebration. And the next morning, after doing a, a quick, also again eight thirty in the morning, and we managed to find a clothing shop open where we could find my lady The basics, yes. And about the taratas, and through the interview, which then got very emotional, and by the end of the interview, Dorothy mentions how the taratas are infamous for not being able to wait, like they have no patience, <laughs> <laughs> and we kept them waiting oh, sure. the night before. Oh my God! Because they were expecting us, we felt <gasps> quite bad. <laughs> Jeremy, I hope you're not listening now. <laughs> <laughs> but also, well that uh, ends well, I guess. Absolutely. It yeah.
1: ends well because it's 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 a fabulous um, documentary series. Do you but come in, let let me just mention that
2: there are other good memories in yeah yeah. There's apart I mean, from
1: losing your bag. Uh,
2: uh, yeah. Oh well. Found, when I found the it way. the following day, it was nice and sealed, nothing <laughs> missing. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in every home that we visited. We felt so welcome, but at the same time embarrassed, that our hosts went to great lengths to make us feel at home. I mean, the shoppers, for instance, cooked a full lunch. With dessert. With dessert. Wow. And we were a team of 10 on Gee- the day. Jesus. With dessert and juice and this and this. You had to choose what you eat. Two types of meat, you know, salads. and. We were very spoiled.
5: And I felt like, oh no.
2: So everyone was sitting on the table with a fucking knife and having lunch after the interview. And it felt so strange because we're not used to that. I mean, when a journalist goes out to work, you don't expect that. You don't get that. You hardly ever get that unless you're attending a conference. And, <laughs> and we found that in every home that we visited, they would make an effort to make us feel at home, yeah. beyond the tears, of course, and we felt the same at Minister Lindue Zulu's home. Mm. They literally had like a table set up, like it's a conference room with bottled water. there, you know, fresh fruit, and, and please take some fruit home. Afterwards you know, when they was yes, so like doggy bag <laughs> fruit, and It was amazing, so you saw the other side of these people that you hardly ever see. When you are on a professional setup, when you mm. meet them like at that level, so I'm glad that we did this because we got to see the human being.
1: I think this is something uh, for me that that really resonates. Says, this is really a human powered story brought to you by females. The fact that you fostered such a meaningful relationship that you that you still maintain to today, I think brought something different. Not, not, as you said, Michelle, not that um, the male counterparts wouldn't be able to to do that. But I, I think that there's something very unique about this story is really how you connect it with the people beyond the story that you were covering oh but it was a story of bringing and uniting humanity.
5: It's women's months. I actually think we should just unashamedly say women were the best people for this job. And and we bring Amen. something... Yeah, why not? a drum <laughs> roll.
1: One, two, three.
5: <laughs> Absolutely. And and that's something that we we should... Sorry, should not sorry. sorry. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. And uh, one thing, actually, if we can just go back to the, the Lata family, one thing that was so interesting was going to their home. Remember, Helene, you were saying... When was the last time we walked up to someone's front door and actually knocked on the front no door? No
3: walls, no gates, no fence. Knocked on the front door. Little kid opens the door at Just night. A sense of freedom Just and wonderful. Yeah. openness yeah. and community, mm. which we're also not used to. <laughs> no, no.
1: Yeah, we generally have people don't walls. want us
3: in there. <laughs> oh
1: my goodness! What um, was one of the most gripping moments for you? doing this documentary that clip that we played earlier
3: i think that was the beginning of the end for us during during that interview unpacking a story which even dorothy and omonde admitted that they haven't really discussed with each other before and we we got a lot of compliments i think throughout the series from families saying that we we uncovered a lot of things that they haven't even discussed with each other Mm. and i think that's really important as a part of the healing so beyond beyond airing this on TV and getting everybody to see it, I think there was a lot of conversation and maybe a path or a door to healing that was opened up within the actual families. Well, you can't really hope for more than that, I think. Absolutely, yeah.
5: I, actually, uh, Lucanio Palata phoned me, I think he phoned all of us uh, on the evening that the story was first aired. That was somewhere around after nine in the evening. He, he gave us a call and he said, you know the whole family have, had had gathered gathered around the TV and they were all watching it together actually dorothy who lives in stellenbosch had travelled to the eastern cape oh, wow. to watch specifically to watch it with her mom so that her mom wouldn't be watching it uh, on her own and for 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 them to say i mean i don't think it's been so long since someone has called me after a story and said thank you so much for opening a new door helen as you say like a new door to healing that for us is uh, our Beautiful. job is done. It was a success if the family thinks that we've been able to help them unearth things that they haven't discussed with each other. That interview was was so incredibly emotional for all of us. I, I remember looking over to Helene. I couldn't see lady. She was sitting in one of the she was other hiding. rooms, she <laughs> she was hiding from was. nicely <laughs> behind the couches. But there were so many <laughs> moments where we looked at each other and sort of dabbing our eyes. And for me, as as a broadcast journalist, it was the first time, and I didn't have a choice in the matter, it was the first time I cried on air because there was no getting away from the raw emotion of the story. I mean, Lucanio is my age, and mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine having not only having lost my father, but having lost my father under those kinds of circumstances. And the one story that Dorothy told us was the Wednesday before her father went to P.E. and eventually went missing, They were all dancing together as a family, a pregnant Nomonde, a three-year-old Lucanio, a nine-year-old Dorothy, and Fort and Nomonde. They were all dancing together. And it was a, a ritual that their family had done, you know, and they were waiting for this new baby to come and Fort was looking forward to dancing with this new baby and um, did she say that she played dance with my father again at her wedding? At her, her wedding, wedding, And that yeah. was it. That was just it. We were done. Yeah. Oh my god. We were broken cut. after that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we we don't cut during interviews like this. So you, know, you can't. We, we choose not to. We choose not to. We'd sure. rather just keep going, and because we don't want to break the
1: momentum no. of of the feeling. So you really need the flow to go, mm. and for the, the audience also to connect and for to, it to what's be real. happening mm. yeah. and being authentic. Absolutely.
2: I think for me, in addition to the Kalata one that was quite emotional, and I don't think I will get over it anytime soon, uh, for a few days after the interview, I didn't want to talk about it. So did Helene, so did Michelle. We were just avoiding the topic. We just mm. didn't want to talk about it with our husbands. We couldn't talk about it with our colleagues. It was just difficult to talk about it. But one of the other moments that touched me was when Minister Lindiwe Zulu's daughters, as they were walking us out, came to me and said, you know, you guys opened up something big. Mm. We've never spoken about how we felt abandoned by our mother when she left us at three and four to go into exile and left us with her grandmother, not our grandmother, but her grandmother, which means it's their great-grandmother in Swaziland." never to see her for 14 years. Hmm. No letter, no phone call, no contact whatsoever for 14 years. By the time she came back, they were in their mid to late teens. So when they came out and say, thank you because you helped us to start this conversation that we've been unable to have for Hmm. so long. Then it said to me, we have helped a family to start a process of healing. Wow, How long it's going to take, we don't know. But at least this is a start.
3: And it's good.
1: Okay, final question. What is the outcome and change you hope this documentary series will bring?
3: I hope it opens the minds of South Africans to the stories that's out there. Mm-hmm. Like we, we said before, there's thousands of these. We're just shining a spotlight really on fire for now. We're hoping to do more. Hoping to, to foster the conversations within families that will help them to heal in some, find healing in some way or another. Education for us
5: as a country, so that we know where we come from.
2: I hope this will show all of us the importance of history, Mm -hmm. because we don't, we didn't fall from the sky, we come from somewhere as a country. And I'm hoping that for those families, they will start making peace with what happened to them and they will also be able to document this history for their grandchildren and great grandchildren, and this will help us as a country to have those important conversations.
1: ladies. Thank you so much for your authenticity your your rawness, and also for the for shining a light on this topic. I've learned a lot from from this interview, so thank you so much for for sharing the stories behind the scenes, your stories of liberation. truly appreciate that. Now, in Murray tradition, we're going to play a game by Barry Hilton. It's called Smart Ask. Now, this really scares me.
5: (laughs) (laughs) We don't know anything unless it involves journalism.
1: (laughs) We know anything about (laughs) this. Like, listen, if I can just say, interviewing journalists is the most stressful thing I've ever done (laughs) in my entire life. Can you imagine?
3: Hello, my cousins. It's Barry Hilton here, and welcome to the Carmen Murray Show. Have I got something lacquer to show you? I've got a game that I've invented called Smart Ask. Yes, can you be a smart ask? I'm sure you can. Most of us are smart askers, but this game, it's quite simple. It's split up into six categories. There's nine cards on each category. Every card has six questions. The dealer chooses the question, and all you have to do is answer three questions correctly to win the game. Is that easy? Uh, well, all of the answers are in multiples of three. So let's get ready to play the game. On your marks, get it. Go.
5: Three Tom Cruise films, pl- quickly. Tough, Tough Gun, Gun, Mission Impossible. Is that right? And uh, The Last Samurai.
1: Three ABBA songs Dancing Queen, um, oh. Waterloo. Oh. Oof. <laughs> Thank you for the music. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Academy Award winners for the best actor. I have no idea. Oh, okay. Christian
3: Bale. um, um Max Must have won something.
5: Uh,
1: Meryl Streep? Meryl Streep. Okay. Characters in Winnie the Pooh. Tigger. Pooh. Eeyore. Yes. <laughs> okay. Colors of the rainbow. Uh, red, orange, yellow, green, blue. blue. Okay, those yes, okay. Chinese dishes. Say again. Chinese dishes. Uh, fried rice. <laughs> Chopped sweet. <laughs> oh, you're right. Okay. Sweet and <laughs> sour chicken. Okay. All right. Top Tart, of tea. Um, Oolong. Roy Boss. <laughs> yes. Salon. <laughs> so ah, oh, well done. I think I did quite well. Can we oh my do over? I don't know if we were at our <laughs> best. <laughs> Listen, it, but it literally blocks your brain when you when you go through. It. Like what? It's the timer. <laughs> I know the timer does get to you. Anyway, ladies, thank you so much. Did we win? No. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> nah. <laughs> Not good with sound effects. Anyway, thank you so much, ladies, and please check the show notes below. Thank,
0: thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Bye. You've been listening to the Carmen Murray Show another solid gold podcast. Please take a moment to rate and share this episode with friends and colleagues who love customer experience and marketing just as much as you do. To connect with Carmen, visit CarmenMurray.com where you will find links to her business services, future fit events, and biz community articles. Carmen Murray is CEO of Ouya Modern Marketing Services that empower businesses to deliver premium customer experiences B2B, B2C and B2B2C across all industries. Some of these services include research, CX strategy, persona development and customer journey mapping, CX audits, UX audits, and the connected marketer training in connected customer experiences mobile, data management, and AI. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast News.